Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Chrissy and Cindy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about, all while hanging with your mom friends. We're so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Hey, bud. Hi, we're back solo. Yes, it's another solo episode. We did an episode last time that we were diving into some questions from the book, Share Your Stuff. And I don't know, how did you feel, Cindy? How did you feel after recording that episode? (laughs) (laughs) What did you, afterwards you texted me and you're like, I'm having vulnerability hangover. (laughs) I did. That's what I said. Yes. Because these questions are very triggering and we are sharing some pretty personal stories, some of which we've not shared outside of, you know, personal circles before. So it feels very vulnerable and you feel very nervous about, you know, certain people hearing it or just how people perceive it. So there's a lot of those emotions and you, you were talking about going through these questions and just trying to sit down and write down some of your thoughts and how, how did that go? (laughs) I, I sit down and I'm like, oh my gosh, do I have the onset of dementia? Like, why can't I? (laughs) Why can't I go back and think about things and, and recall important moments that I should be able to, uh, I've literally sat on the couch and I was like, okay, come to me. What are you are so not alone in that though? Do you feel like your life is kind of segmented? I feel like my life is kind of chunked out into different segments and I feel very separate from these past parts of my life. High school me, college me, when I was a teacher, I feel so different from when I was a teacher. When I try to sit and think back, it's really hard sometimes. I'm getting better because I'm in therapy now and we she makes me do it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, I do, I feel like they're kind of separate parts. I don't know. I've never thought of it that way, but yes, now that you say that I do feel like my life is in chunks. It's, and it actually, it asks this in one of the questions that we're going to be getting on today. At the end of each chapter, she gives you a few phrases or questions to help you think about the deeper question and answer the deeper question. One of the questions that we're answering today is about when it all changed. And she said, I divide my life as before this certain event and after this certain event. And so it kind of goes along with what you just said, where you segment into these specific areas of your life. And it's so true before I was married, after I was married or before kids, after kids, before college, after college. Yeah. Your, your identity shifts so much with these big life changes and just with aging and maturity, it changes you fundamentally as a person. Oftentimes when you mentioned therapy, I remember a quote that she says in this book and it said, I realized early on that the reasons for starting therapy were not at all the reasons I needed to continue therapy. Oh my gosh. That's so true. So good. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So 
you it, uncover and unpack so yeah. much in therapy that it, it like, it's like you start with the surface level problem that you are aware of in day-to-day life. And then you go to therapy and you dig deeper and deeper. And sometimes it goes deeper and sometimes it goes sideways, but you're getting to the root cause of right. the issues. And yet yeah, it totally alters what it is you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, going into our discussion today, since we've already alluded to one of the questions and we've kind of talked about it a little bit, we're going to be talking about when did it change? Some events are so transformational that if you were to look back at a map of your life, they would be marked by a sign with an arrow and the words sharp turn here. Sometimes life changes because of a traumatic event, a death, a divorce, a layoff, or a natural disaster. Other times it's the little things in your everyday that tip off a change that was already building within you. Seeing a disappointing photo of yourself that leads to a lifestyle overhaul, overhearing what a friend really thinks about you. Then she gives the the questions at the end. And some of these questions were helpful for me. I'm wondering if they were helpful for you as well, but I already uh, mentioned one. I divide my life as before X and after X. I never looked at her, him, them, it the same way again. I didn't realize how bad it was until it got better. When I see that younger version of myself in photos, I want to hug her. How about you? Will you talk me through? When did it change for you? Okay. So I had three that came to mind, three moments in my life where like the trajectory just really changed. The first one for me was actually when I was nine. And that was when my grandmother died. My grandmother had helped raise me. I actually lived with her and my grandfather for a while when I was a baby, when I was first born, while my mom was undergoing training for a job. And she was a couple states away and I was living with my grandparents. After the training was over, she came back, picked me up, um, and I moved in with her. But we went and spent every weekend with my grandparents from babyhood all the way until I was nine. So they were a huge, huge part of my life. We spent weeks with them every summer. In my short nine years of life, my grandmother was always a constant for me. She was always there. She really was like a second mom to me. And she was my mom's best friend. So when my grandmother died, my mom was understandably devastated. We both were but my mom had lost her best friend. So that was when my mom's mental health began to suffer. She really sank into a deep depression. As a nine-year-old, I simultaneously lost one of the most important people in my life and became my mom's lifeline. Um, You know, I kind of took it on this role of like cheering my mom up when she was down and trying to keep her grounded and, you know, talking her down from the ledge, I guess. Mm, that's a lot to carry as a nine-year-old. Yes. To me, it was a shift in, in childhood. It was a, a shift in relationship between my mom and me and my relationship, my role in the family. It was a role that I found I was incredibly good at, <laughs> maybe too good at. It's something that still kind of follows me to this day, this like, caretaking and and checking and empathizing. And um, it just became a big part of who I was from a very young age. But ultimately that 
my grandmother's passing shifted my role within the family. And I feel it did bring on responsibilities that I don't know that I was quite ready for at nine. Beyond I learned, Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I learned to adapt. And I do think it has given me a lot of the qualities that I have and rely on today. So that's one. Uh, The second one, which you know about, and I've shared about before would be my car accident. When I was in high school, I suffered from depression. As I mentioned in the previous episode, I had some times where I had suicidal ideation and had attempted suicide and just very extreme emotions. And in hindsight, when I look back, I don't know how much of it was wrapped up in teenage angst, you know, like just Mm. being a teenager. Yeah. But when I was, it was the summer going into my senior year of high school, I was in a very bad car accident. Um, I hit a utility pole and it snapped in half. I had a passenger in the car with me. And when he got out of the car, he put his foot down and he acted as a conductor for the electricity. So his body flew through the air, you know, 20 feet away. And then the electricity then shot through the car and out of the speaker in the side door and through my leg. And I was electrocuted. I was knocked unconscious. Um, I had burns down the side of my body. Uh, They ended up sending in a helicopter and I was medevaced to a burn unit. I was told I should not have lived. I was told that I was very lucky to be alive. I was lucky the electricity had traveled down my leg instead of up towards my heart. I was lucky I was wearing the sandals I was wearing because it allowed the electricity to shoot out. What actually changed for me was From that moment on, from the moment that I made it through that car accident, I went through countless surgeries and rehab and I appreciated life. I did not think about suicide again. I did not think about it. Not to say that like my depression was healed. I mean, I still Mm -hmm. battle with anxiety now more so than depression, but I... I wanted to live. I I did not question it ever again. I life was valuable. It was beautiful. It's hard. It's it's so incredibly hard. There are so many things that will knock you down and make you want to curl up in a ball, but at the end of the day, when I look around at the people I love and the beauty outside there in the world, I'm thankful to be here and I want to be here. And that was a huge shift for me. Like just kind of skyrocketed me out of that kind of depressive state. So that's shift number two. Shift number three, I think is probably a shift for every mom. And that would be having my daughter, having a child. Um, it, it just, it changed my identity. It changed my priorities. It changed who I was fundamentally. We always talk about this, how, when you have a kid, it opens you up to so many things that are triggering to you. And it has certainly, certainly done that for me. It's forced me to start learning more about myself and my childhood and the different things from my childhood that, you know, have formed me into who I am and how they're maybe still impacting me. Watching this other human grow and being responsible for their safety and dealt with postpartum anxiety, finding who I was as this new person, as this mom, and still trying to stay in touch with that person I was outside of motherhood. So just finding balance, I guess. And I'm still navigating all that. So I think I would say that that's 
the third change, but I'm still in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that change will ever come to a point where you're like, I have arrived. I have changed. (laughs) I just think I'm constantly shifting and changing because of motherhood. So I would say that's probably my third one. Absolutely. Motherhood has that effect. Yeah. (laughs) When you were answering these questions, did you notice that the majority of the shifts in your life, the pivots, the changes have all been centered around some sort of negative event until you talk about giving birth to your baby or, you know, there's certain events that of course, finding your partner or getting married, um, having the birth of your baby that can shift a person's life, but the majority, and I'm highly generalizing right now. I'm for the majority, it's centered around some sort of tragedy or sadness. Well, and she mentions that in the book, it often is something tragic or very hard that you move through, but that it can also be something small. If we all sat down and like, yes, we come up with those like two or three big initial ones, and they probably are the negative ones. But if we sit and we think about all the things that have changed us, I'm sure we can come up with I think her example was seeing a photo that made you make a lifestyle change. Sure. We can come up with lots of like little things that Mm -hmm. kind of change the trajectory of what we're doing with our life or where we are, who were, who is a part of our life. I mean, every day we make decisions that impact us in some way. So I think if we sat down and just really like went hog wild, making a, a list, we would have lots of not big, not negative things too. But that's what we were talking about in the beginning. When you sit down and you go to think it's the big stuff that sticks out and the little stuff just kind of our backup dancers, but it's not always the case, right? Like there, like you just said, there are these small moments where things in your life shifted. And so those are the, those are the things that I have to sit with and digest and think, okay, what were, and there's a few that pop into my head right away. These small moments that changed my life. So what were yours? When did it change? When did it change for you? Gosh, when I sat down to answer this, I kind of wanted to go in chronological order (laughs) and say, set it up up right for everybody and be like, well, this is when this happened and this happened, but life doesn't happen. So linearly, it doesn't something that might start affecting you in the beginning of your life ultimately affects you later in your life too. So anyway, I can't go chronologically. So it, it probably will bounce around a little bit, but the first one that I wanted to talk about was it all changed after I received my OCD diagnosis, obsessive compulsive disorder. I have ADD in there as well. Of course, all of this is linked together with anxiety, anxiety disorders. And I, I knew growing up that there was something quote unquote different about me. I could, I could feel it. I had these periods when I was a little girl where I would have, and my family referred to them as stages. And it would be things like my tied bow had to point a certain way to the patch of my new doll, or my sneakers had to be tied a certain way, 
or, and then it, it kind of progressed and, and everyone was like, oh, Cindy is very particular. Cindy just wants things a certain way. As it evolved a little bit more through the anxiety, I started to have things where it was centered around hand-washing and germs and death. And I would obsess about, you know, something in our family that was instilled in me was minding your manners and don't fart in public, stuff like that. So I took that almost to the extreme and I'd be like in church, for example, oh my gosh, I think I just farted. I think, you know, it's like obsessing or I'd get up and I'd think that I'd farted and I'd get up and I'd brush the seat off. It was like, this wasn't allowed. I don't know. Just like really silly things like that, which my family, again, just thought that it was these different stages that I was Mm -hmm. going through. And as a parent, you can see your kids go through this, right? Like this child doesn't like texture in their clothing. This one doesn't like tags, but when does it actually evolve into more of a disorder? Right. So I also remember as a kid, one of the compulsions that I had was my toys. They had to be pristine and I would play with them. But if I thought germs got on them, I would blow on them until I felt they were clean. It was almost like this click in my head where, okay, it's clean. And most likely it was probably when I got lightheaded (laughs) because of blowing on them so much, but you know, it's, Okay. So I also have to rewind and say, this was a long time ago. It was in the eighties and nineties and OCD wasn't known. Like there was nothing really to go on. My parents had no basis for thinking of it. I mean, ADD, ADHD was not even really well known in that time period. I mean, yes, it was starting to become known and they were just literally throwing Ritalin to to kids, you know, because that was just the time period. So as I got older, my compulsions moved more into my mind. It wasn't an outward thing because they weren't accepted, right? Like to do that stuff in elementary school. Yeah. People were just kind of like, she's just growing and has her quirks, right? But if you get into your older years, you're labeled as weird. So I I basically lassoed it all in and it all became part of my mind. And so I started to obsess over saying the wrong things and being what I was supposed to be. And my schoolwork, that was where it really became more apparent is that I spent so much time on my schoolwork And I got really good grades, but I put a lot of effort into it because you can only imagine how your mind is distracted, right? Thinking of all of this stuff and having all of these thoughts swirling and whatnot in your mind is just so distracting. So I would spend so much time on my schoolwork and my friends would say, oh yeah, I went to bed last night at nine o'clock, nine 30. And I was up until midnight, 1230, finishing my schoolwork, which is just like, why is it so easy for them? And it's so hard for me. And my parents tried, they, they really tried to figure out what was going on. Um, however, I got such good grades that the school system couldn't do anything for me. Yeah. Uh, 
So fast forward, my parents finally found a testing place, got me tested. And then this diagnosis came out and it was almost freeing, but at the same time, it was, it, it re-solidified to me the, the stories I had told in my head about me being broken. At one point I felt, okay, I, I, I know why I'm like the way I am. And the other side was like, okay, compared to everybody else in the world that doesn't have to deal with neurodiversity, I'm broken. And then it just kind of progressed into trying to find ways to help me. So through college and medicine and whatnot, but that was a period of my life that, that really shifted for me and really changed things because now I work through that in therapy and there's so much more studies out now that basically make me feel like, no, I'm not broken. This is my mind. This is my brain and I need to embrace it. And, and there's so much power in just having an answer, having a a diagnosis or knowing that other people are going through it. And, and you're right. Like you're not broken. That's true. Yeah. There was definitely validation in there as well. And I've worked through quite a bit of it in therapy to reinforce that I have a brilliant mind that I do have strengths and I'm, I'm gifted in ways that others are not gifted. Whether it's your first positive pregnancy test or you're a veteran parent, a new chapter is beginning as you add to your family. The Beginnings Center serves families through the transitions of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. They have birth doulas who walk alongside you through pregnancy and offer continuous support through labor. I actually had a doula for each of my birth experiences, and it was extremely helpful. The Beginnings Center also offers postpartum doula services to help you heal, smooth your baby's transition to life outside the womb, and facilitate whole family bonding with day and night availability. I have friends that have used a postpartum doula and have raved about how helpful it was for them. The Beginnings Center serves all families and has specialty training in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, which is crucial for parents in those early postpartum weeks. The Beginnings Center also offers infant feeding consultations, which allow you to prepare for baby's arrival with an individualized feeding plan and walk alongside you through any struggles you may have. They also have groups and classes which allow you to make meaningful connections with other parents as you get informational and emotional support. Be sure to mention Mama Needs a Moment to get 10% off an infant feeding consultation. Head to thebeginningscenter.com to learn more and contact Madeline today. So then it leads me into the other part of when it all changed the anxiety piece for me, I, I want to explain where my intense anxiety came from as a child. Yes. I do believe that it ran in my family, OCD, anxiety, ADD kind of runs in my family, but my brother, as I alluded to in the previous episode had a diagnosis of hemophilia, which is a blood clotting disorder. And he was born with that. It wasn't anywhere in our family, um, but he was born with hemophilia. And so we learned to live with this diagnosis for him. So we were very protective of him because if he got bumped wrong, he could bleed, bleed out. So we were always 
watching over him, careful for him, protective of him. And there was this delicate balance of allowing him to live his life and be a kid and also protect him because we knew how it, what the result could ultimately be. So that was part of my childhood. My mom and dad um, did transfusions for him at our house because we lived about 35 minutes from the hospital. So it started off where he, we would take him in and then my parents were trained and more. It was my mom that, that took on this nurturing role of, of providing him with um, the clotting factor that he needed. But then when I was, I want to say probably about 10, he received another diagnosis of an illness that was very unknown at the time and had a lot of stigma uh, attached to it. And so that diagnosis was also where it changed because we had to adjust in our family really decide a different way to protect him. And then ultimately fast forwarding, uh, he ended up passing away, which was another change in my life, which really altered the trajectory of, of things. And we talked about that in the previous episode quite a bit, but definitely his passing because he was just such an amazing little boy. I always think of him as this 16 year old kid and what he would be like right now as his 40 something self. But he just brought a lot of humor to things and was an older spirit in a little boy's body. Mm, And it was just, um, he was just a lovely, lovely boy that I love to talk about too. So um, when people ask me. How how old were you when he passed? I was 18 and had just started my freshman year of college. And then he passed away just shy of his 17th birthday. So, and I was young, I was just a baby and my sister was 20. And so she was just enough older than me to comprehend things a bit differently. So it's nice to talk to her and, um, get an idea of how she viewed things differently from me because she got angry. I, went inward and protected myself by being the good girl, being, um, not completely understanding everything because that was a protection mechanism for me. So then my, my third and final one that I'll touch on was I used her, um, prompt Laura's prompt that I divided my life as before working at this particular company and after working at this particular company was here. It's a local company that was touted as being the best culturally and um, supportive of family. So I was extremely grateful to be able to work where I worked and I got such wonderful benefits. So like I, I got great friends from there and there, there were so many gifts of working. I met two women there that really put me on a path to start reevaluating my spiritual life, which was something I was yearning for because I had received conflicting views on things. And 
I, I harbored some resentment towards some of the things that I had learned. There were some residual feelings of shame and uh, guilt from how the, the religion that I had been raised in. And specifically when my brother was in the hospital, one of the, we had a, a, a priest come in and visit him at the hospital. And it was a very, very negative experience where he was persistent on going in, even when we said that he shouldn't. And it's just not what you would view as quote unquote godly or loving. And so that really shifted my ideas of, of things. So working at this company got me on a path to really start evaluating my spiritual life. And like I said, I, I've met some wonderful people. I'm still friends with them. We still go out for dinners, but where it changed was it crushed my confidence in, in a way it was in my late twenties, early thirties. So I was in that mindset before kids where I was, I had to climb the corporate ladder and I had to be labeled and, and be successful. And so even though I was happy where I was in this, in this specific department that I was in, I felt like I needed to keep reaching. And so I moved into this other department and it was a toxic area. I wasn't supported well. I wasn't coached well. They expected me to do things that weren't one on my pay scale. And two, I wasn't, hadn't learned efficiently yet. So when I was five months pregnant, I ultimately left the company. And that was a huge crash on my confidence level. But at the same time, it was a blessing because it set me on the path to parenthood and to reevaluate my needs. And because I would have stayed there, I would have worked there, but being outside, I was able to fully embrace what I needed and what I wanted for myself professionally, as well as for myself as a parent. I mean, it's funny how jobs and careers are such a big part of who we are. And I'm actually speaking to a lot of moms about this right now for an article I'm working on about the identity shift that happens in motherhood. And a lot of it is wrapped up in careers too. Whether some really found their identity in motherhood, some realize that they love being a mom, but they need that additional outside engagement of, of an outside career in some way. Some of them really em- embrace their identity through motherhood and then their children are going into school now into kindergarten and they're now they're facing that shift in identity. Mm. So, and it's like intertwined, right? Motherhood and the career question, whether you stay at home or you pursue a career, there's so many aspects of, of guilt and, and identity. And it, there's just so many questions wrapped up in that. So absolutely. Well, that was a nice discussion. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I oh, you too. That. I yeah. enjoyed hearing more about what has changed you. All right. So the next question is a good one. This question Laura Tremaine poses in the book. It's what are you afraid of? She says, we're all afraid of something. Some of us carry that fear more tangibly than others. 
Maybe you fear fear. So you go out of your way to avoid feeling it. You stuff it down. You're vigilant about it. Fear is powerful, which is why it's not easy to tell others about our fears. Talking about our fears makes us feel vulnerable, like we've strolled outside naked. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking our fears out loud can make us nervous that we might conjure the very things we are afraid of. She goes on and will pose the question, why tempt fate? And then ask you to talk about your deepest fears. And she says, because sharing our stuff drags it out of the dark and into the light and everything looks better in the light. And I really love that. And I think that's a big piece of therapy. You know, in diving into this question, I had to dive into a lot and what I'm talking about in therapy. And it's so true. Just by talking about it with a sympathetic listener, talking about it with a couple close people in your lives that get it and won't judge and can kind of just be open to it. It it can make some of that fear feel less all-consuming, I guess. So what are yours then? Take oh, no, you, you have to go first no. on this one. <laughs> I just got done talking for like 20 minutes. No, that's how we did it last time. <laughs> okay, I'll go first. Um, I'm forcing her to go answer. first. I have two fears that I kind of put down. One of them is a slightly lighter one, I guess. Um, I have a fear of going underwater. When I was little, my grandfather was holding me in the ocean. We had, I'd gone to the ocean with him and a big wave came and knocked into him and he lost his grip on me. So he really, he was quick. He fished me out of the water, but it was monumental enough of a moment for me that it stuck with me. So I, and with some of our, her friends actually am getting ready to do a sprint triathlon and some of us are going to take swimming classes because there's actually quite a few adults that say swimming is not their strength. So that was also helpful for me to hear. And I am, I am actually a fairly strong swimmer. I can get from point A to point B. My head will not go below. I'll be like, <laughs> swim. Doggy um, paddle. <laughs> it's not a dog. Like it's like the right movement, right, right. but my head's not going under. And Noah was watching me one day and he's like, you're going to tire yourself out. So I'm going to take some swim lessons. I'm going to conquer this fear. <laughs> Guess what? Everyone has a spine and nervous system and can benefit from chiropractic care. Anytime there is stress on your nervous system, your body may not function properly. Many people are unaware that children can benefit from chiropractic care. They assume that seeing a chiropractor is just something you do when you're an adult dealing with a bad back, stiff joints, or poor posture. True story, that was me for the longest time. For example, as a newborn, you might struggle to latch or breastfeed. As a toddler, you might experience digestive issues that threaten proper nourishment. As a teen, poor posture, heavy backpacks, contact sports, and normal growing pains can lead to your child experiencing headaches, scoliosis, PMS, back pain, and ADD, ADHD. Additionally, as a pregnant woman, you might have persistent lower back pain, which chiropractic care can be a huge help for. Believe it or not, these issues are all related to your nervous system and they can all improve with chiropractic care. Chiropractic care aims to improve the function of your spine and nervous system so that your body can function at its best. Don't wait for the pain. Contrary to popular belief, you don't have to be in pain to seek out chiropractic care. In fact, pain is typically the last 
symptom that is expressed when the spine isn't in proper alignment. Think of chiropractic care as a healthy lifestyle habit. The same way you brush your teeth to prevent cavities, you should go for regular chiropractic adjustments to promote better spine and nervous system health. I've never thought of it that way. Davis Family Chiropractic serves families in the Raleigh area. They want to help you discover the root cause of your problem, address it, and give your body the best tools it needs to heal. Davis Family Chiropractic focuses on prenatal and pediatric chiropractic care, and their doctors are both certified in the Webster technique, which can be helpful throughout pregnancy or simply as an intervention if a baby is breached. Prenatal chiropractic care helps to keep mom comfortable during pregnancy and helps to get your baby in the best possible position for birth. Davis Family Chiropractic sees kids of all ages, from birth through teenagers to make sure that your child is developing properly and adapting to life. Visit Davis Family Chiropractic at daviscaironc.com and on social media at daviscaironc. Improve your family's health before it becomes an issue. When I first picked up on this question, saw this question, the first thing that came to mind for me is actually what I'm working through in therapy, for the most part, it comes up again and again and again in my sessions. And it is my fear of not being enough, of not being seen. Yeah. And I am realizing how much of this stems from childhood. You know, my Dad was not in the picture. We had a relationship where he would, you know, send postcards and stuff um, from different places that he was. But I watched all the kids around me have these really deep, awesome relationships with their fathers. And I really felt the lack, though I would never admit it. And I don't know that I knew at a young age, I couldn't have described it, but it was always there. I had always felt that something was missing from my life. And I blamed myself. I thought I wasn't good enough. I thought I had done something wrong. Or why wouldn't this very important person want me in their life? So, you know, I I would go down these paths of if I had been better or different in some way, you know, perhaps this person would have chosen to know me and, and to be a part of my life in some way. So it became very important to prove myself. It became very important to be recognized that I was doing a good job. um, And that has followed me through my whole life, through school, through work. I will bust my butt to be the top, the best, because that's how I prove myself. It's just a narrative that has followed me around through adulthood. It's shown up in so many ways. It's shown up in romantic relationships and friendships. You know, and I, I often have kind of like that imposter syndrome aspect too, where I fear being found out, being showed up by someone else, being cast aside. There's, there's all these fears wrapped up in it, like fear of being left, fear of being alone, fear mm-hmm. of all these things. And I, I just have this need to feel needed and wanted. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting to always feel like I'm trying to prove myself and trying to be worthy. I'm always still to this day, always kind of questioning relationships. It always goes back to that deeply rooted thought pattern that I have. I I think that was the first fear that came to mind, mostly because 
I'm talking about it so much in therapy right now, but this idea of not being enough or this fear of not being seen in some way. Have there been action steps that your therapist have, has given you to help you work through that? Um, yeah. So I absolutely love my therapist. I'm doing a lot of EMDR, which has been very helpful. It's a lot of grounding myself and meditation. There are things that you're envisioning that put you in a place where you are wrapped up in this feeling of being enough and, you know, like Mm -hmm. just really firmly entrenched in who you are and embodied in yourself. I've also had homework assignments like asking people for help and taking something off of my list and, you know, just stuff like that, where I get into this trap of doing so much because that's who I've grown up to be for a variety of reasons and how important it is to just kind of let some of that control go sometimes. Yeah. So it sounds like she's helping to reaffirm the opposite story that you have been telling yourself all these years. Because we tend to adopt a story or a message, and that's what we keep retelling to ourselves because it's benefiting us in some way, even though we don't really understand how it's benefiting us. And it sounds like she's taking you to think about the opposite of what your story is. Does that sound accurate? Yeah. And she's very reaffirming in how she speaks to me and things she notices about people in my life and my story that I haven't even noticed. Mm. Um, So it's helpful to hear an outside perspective, but she's different from a lot of therapists that I've worked with. There's not a lot of cognitive change or thought patterns per se. It's much more physical. How is your body responding right now when you're having these thoughts? And for me, it's often in my stomach, butterfly kind of panicky feeling. So it comes back to to that a lot, release those feelings in my body. And it's amazing how that changing your physical response to a thought can then change yes. the feeling. And, and so it's not a lot of change the thought in your head. We don't yes. really do that in this particular therapy, though I've done that therapy in the past. I am loving this like physical focus mm-hmm. because it's something that I've actually seen work and I can control it so much better than I can control my thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like controlling thoughts is really yes. hard, yeah. um, <laughs> but like learning to notice your body yeah. and what kind of response your body is having and just letting that go. Like, mm. okay, just release the stomach that like clenching up and it, it alters, it alters how you're feeling. It alters the thought pattern you're having in your head. All right. How about you? What are you afraid of? Uh, okay. Well, I'm afraid of snakes. I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> I'm afraid of buttons. Okay. I should, probably- <laughs> I should probably elaborate on that one. I love this one. Yes. <laughs> I'm not literally afraid of them. Let's just say I get a little heebie-jeebies from them and not having them on my shirts, not having them on my jackets or clothing, but if they've fallen off and they're like on the floor, I get like this feeling. So if it was Christmas and I wrapped up a box with buttons in it, that wouldn't. Yeah, that would. (laughs) (laughs) The kids will take a jar of buttons and just be like, mom, jingle, 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 jingle. And I'm like, guys, please. Yeah. Or like, especially (laughs) if there are threads still in it and it's on the floor or if it's kind of dangling 
on clothing. I don't know what this is about, but uh, it's not this came, fear. this came up in a previous podcast episode and I had kind of, it kind of forgot. I kind of forgot. It went out of my mind a little bit. I'm really glad you brought this up again. This is, this is good, but it, I have to reiterate. It's not a fear. It's a, ugh. <laughs> Got okay. it. All right. Got it. But Got it. I am afraid of loss. I'm afraid of not only the loss that comes with losing someone you love to death, but the loss of relationships, mm. I think is, is where it stems from. And this is, it started when I was a little, my parents are, are married. So it wasn't anything about loss in terms of a relationship that way. Um, it was a message that I had interpreted when I was younger. Perhaps I heard someone talking to somebody else about how they might've had a falling out with their mom or a sister or you name it. They had a disagreement and then they haven't spoken to this person in years. Mm. Yeah. And so along the way of having that message just kind of morph in my mind and the experiences I had in high school where, oh, she's mad at you. Well, then all these other girls are going to be mad at you too. And so therefore you don't have the support of this posse anymore. (laughs) And it, it just framed my mind that, that fear of having that happen between my family and my friends. And I recognized it was so much easier to just avoid conflict in order to not have something like that happen to me where someone gets so mad and then they leave. Right. So basically this main fear led to smaller, little, little fears, like fears of conflict or fear of being friendless or fear of being unliked. So I see it play out now in my adult relationships. So I'm married. I have a wonderful relationship with my husband. I see it play out now where I might not voice something I feel because I love my family so much that I don't want something to come between us. And I, an argument. And and that's not good because I have noticed that I keep quiet at the cost of my authenticity probably, or at the cost of me voicing my true feelings. I also see it surface with my adult friendships. I mean, you and I started her health collective because we both know how hard it is to make friends with adults after you've had kids. Yes, you have your really close friends from growing up, but really having the time to put into a friendship as an adult when you have your all your other responsibilities is really taxing and it's hard. <laughs> hard. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. So I see it play out where I have this and I can feel it inside. It it's like this ball and it, it sits in my chest stomach area. And I let friendships get just so far, but I feel myself put up a barrier. And I think it's because I worry about, okay, if I get them to be in my life, to be a really close friend with me, then they might, I might show them 
who I really am. And they're going to leave. When you talk about your fears and you talk, you're saying them out loud, you can definitely see the dysfunction in it, but it doesn't yeah. change the fact yeah. that it's there. I completely identify with so much of what you said in what you just said. I noticed a string of what I had talked about too, Mm -hmm. the fear of not being enough. We both maybe attached a different storyline. Again, mine was this fear of not being enough and not being seen. And yours was like this fear of someone leaving or loss. From what I'm hearing, I think that the stories, the underlying feeling there is the same, really. This idea of not being enough, someone leaving us. Opening yourself up and showing someone who you truly are is so vulnerable and so scary. And the truth is nobody is going to be the right fit for everybody. Mm -hmm. So there will undoubtedly be someone that does leave because that's life. And this is a hard thing for me to accept because I truly believe that everyone should like me. (laughs) Right, me too. But I, I, as I say that, like, I, I don't, and I truly don't believe everyone likes me. I I mean, that was a joke, right? (laughs) Um, But I work hard to make everybody, I want everybody to like me. And in that, I do think you sacrifice some of your authenticity because you're, you're people pleasing at that point, you know, you're, well, this person wants this for me. So let me show up as this this kind of person. And this person is looking for this. So let me kind of alter myself in this way. And you're never truly being who you are. And, you know, I've talked about this in therapy too. Sometimes I feel so wish-washed around trying to be everything to everybody that I don't know who I am anymore. Oh my gosh, me too. (laughs) (laughs) That's our main thing right now. Who am I? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that, and I, I believe everybody deals with this to some degree. I think some people have maybe done the work or maybe didn't have a lot of trauma in their life and just kind of grew up centered and grounded in knowing who they are. But I think the vast majority of us, majority of us deal with this in some capacity, this question of who am I really? How am I showing up in the world? Who do I want to be? And how is that going to be perceived by others? And My hope is that as we age and mature and, you know, I I always have people like our parents' generation and they're like, yeah, you just reach a point where you stop caring. And and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to keep waiting for that day because I still care. I still care. But I wanted, (laughs) I don't want that point to be now. I mean, I don't want to waste any more time in my life waiting for, you know, being on my deathbed and being like having somebody Uh, ask me, what would you change? Oh, worrying about what other people thought or making people like me. I want that to be now. So doggone it. (laughs) I'm going to put this work in and yes. Yeah. Figure it out. It made me think about in the beginning when we had talked about realizing early on the reasons that we start therapy, but they're not often the reasons why we continue. And when I, of course, in the beginning, when I first started therapy, I I started when my brother passed away and it was in college and I just simply could not find a therapist that Mm -hmm. really could help me in that way. Fast forward to when I moved down here to North Carolina, I found a therapist that I really loved and connected with. And 
my main purpose for going in there was because I had gone through a breakup and I was struggling to let go of the relationship, but that's not really why I went in to therapy. It was so much more, so much more come to find out. I mean, this is 15 years later and we're still working. So I agree with you on the first point. So I started therapy in high school because of, I, I mean, a variety of reasons I had to go in for therapy and I never clicked with a therapist. I think it's really hard to find a good therapist in those teenage years. So this go around when I did start therapy again, it was actually because of my anxiety, my postpartum anxiety, which rocked my world and still dealing with to some degree off and on. And we don't talk about my anxious feelings all that often Mm -hmm. (laughs) in, in therapy. Like, I mean, it comes up through other things, but yes, we dove down and we're in the roots now. Anxiety is the result of other emotions. So you have to dig and find out where that stems from. And Oh, good grief. It's like people say an onion, but I was trying to think of a different analogy because (laughs) that one's so (laughs) overused. (laughs) It's a perfect analogy. Like you're, peel- you're peeling back all those layers and, you know, there's things that we bury down deep that, um, we insist for so much of our lives is not a problem and right. is not an issue for you. And I would swear up and down that these things didn't impact me. And it's only through these deeper conversations in a place like therapy, a safe space like therapy, where it actually comes to light and it sheds so much light on, other behaviors and things that hurt you and, you know, hurt you in your day-to-day life. And you're like, why am I so hurt by this? Most people probably wouldn't have their, their world rocked by this thing, but Mm -hmm. it is causing me serious pain. No, I want the green (laughs) (laughs) M&Ms. Yes, exactly. Well, this was fun. This was, I don't know if fun is the right word. Um, I enjoyed getting to talk deep with you though, and hear some of your stories that make you who you are and, you know, have built you into the amazing, wonderful person you are now. The feeling is very mutual. I've enjoyed this time and I encourage all of you out there to really sit down and think about these questions yourself. Think about when did it change for you and what are you scared of? And Chrissy and I talked a lot in this episode about therapy. We're trying to change the stigma around mental health and let everyone know that therapy is helpful. And if you don't have success with it the first time, don't give up. Yes, absolutely. And it can be daunting for sure to look at yourself and be like, I have so much going on. I don't have time for this (laughs) or, and and when I say so much going on, I mean, in your internal world and your external world that you just don't want to take the time to dig in, but it's very revolutionizing to find out who you are and what makes you, you. And it's healing. It Mm -hmm. is absolutely healing. All right. Till next time. Ciao. Bye-bye, friends. We've enjoyed hanging out with you. Follow us so you're the first to know when we drop a new episode. If you enjoyed your time with us, let us know by leaving a review. We always love hearing from you. Until next time, stay true to you.